Hello, coconuts. Welcome back for our Tuesday's weekly market update. This week, we're here to talk about Netflix's profitability on Squid Game. Tesla is manufacturing 300,000 cars in China in nine months. Xiaomi invests in an automotive chip company in their Series C round. And is China's Evergrande the next big short? Stay tuned. TFC's weekly market update scours the net to find worthy financial news to be further discussed and expanded. It is a banter session with facts, figures, and fun to help you get caught up in the world of investing. So join in the banter live with me, Rakesh, your host, weekly Tuesdays at 8 p.m. on our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch. Awesome, guys. Here again, uh, thanks for joining us at 8 o'clock as usual on Tuesdays. A uh, couple of shots today. We're going to be talking uh, quite a number of things. I think um, Tesla is on the board there, Trip.com, Xiaomi. Uh, we also talk a little bit about the gambling um, companies or the online betting companies that want to purchase other companies, uh, DraftKings, for example. One of the big ones you want to first start off with, with is Squid Game, right? And, and uh, CS is going to take us through it. But just before CS gets started, right, don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, we are talking about Squid Game and, and the, how, how it's created sort of a viral effect. And we've got some numbers for you with regards to Netflix and we can talk about Netflix there. Uh, so please go ahead and leave any comments and we can answer that immediately. All right. Uh, thanks, folks. CS, on to you. All righty. So um, Squid Games, uh, I guess before, <laughs> I brought, before I brought this up, do, have any of you actually heard of it? <laughs> Squid Game, I, I, yes, I've heard of it. I've seen the viral video. I've seen I've seen some of those things, and I'm like, "What the hell is this thing? It looks so scary." Sorry, I I thought it was horror, so I didn't I didn't look at it yet. Boomer, boomer, okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently, there, Reggie. No, I haven't watched it myself, but I know it's creating, um, you know, massive um, viral viralness. I guess if that's a word in, in Singapore as well as as other countries. Um, but maybe tell us more, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I actually didn't know much about Squid Games either. Uh, I have he- I heard about it like here and there. You know, a lot of people are like, "Oh, you got to ride this media wave." I'm just like, I have no idea what's happening, right? Uh, but then late uh, earlier today, uh, I saw an article by Barrons, and they were saying that Squid Game has uh, overtaken like at the most watched um, series on Netflix, right? And before really? that, it was yeah, yeah. And before that, it was Lupin, right? And for me, I, like I really enjoyed watching Lupin. Uh, so I was like, oh, maybe I maybe I should check out a Squid Game. So I, you know, spent spent an hour or two earlier today uh, watching a few episodes, just uh, trying to understand what exactly this is about. And and I, I you know, I guess the way if I were to explain it to you right now, um, I would describe it as uh, think about you know think about these like adults playing children games, right? So uh, a very common ch- uh, children game, I think, that transcends all. Um, you know, cultures is the whole red light, green light, right? So the idea there is like you have someone who's like, who's playing the cop and they're not looking and then you're supposed to like slowly sneak, you know, your way across um, some sort of field. And then once once they look, you're supposed to like stop moving, right? Um, so essentially it's like games very similar to that. Um, but the consequences of being caught is that they kill you, right? So they just, they just eliminate you overall. Right. Um, and yeah, from from there, like the whole premise is if you can make it through all these like this like set of games, um, you would essentially win a bunch of money. Uh, I think, um, you know, the up to where I saw it, it was about forty five billion dollars. 
or sorry, for 45 billion won, which is about 28 million dollars, US dollars, right? Um, and the reason why, like, um, or the how they found all these uh, participants is that all of these people are like, you know, they own, they owe a lot of money to loan sharks, right? So they're essentially going after people who are, you know, who are desperate, like last chance of survival type of th- uh, thing. And then they, yeah, they're approaching them saying, hey, we, you know, we're, we're, we can be your savior if you are interested in playing this game, right? Um, so, I mean, now I'm not going to get into like the, um, like hold the game anymore. Um, but what I found really interesting uh, when I found out that, you know, Netflix or its number one uh, series on Netflix is number one, like how much did it cost to make um, the game or the start of the show? And then number two, uh, how much, how much do we think um, it's grown Netflix's um, user, user base or it's able, it was like the show that kept people um, another, uh, for another month, right? Because I think, uh, you know, the last few um, sessions that we did, uh, Reggie talked a lot about Disney, right? And how Disney's uh, I, like franchise, like all the IP has, is able to bring in uh, multi-billion dollars, right? Um, so I, I'm curious uh, on your take, like, so, okay, so I guess let's, um, facts that I am aware of at this moment. So it's, it's, it's estimated um, that Squid Games cost about uh, 17 million US dollars to create. Um, there are about nine episodes, Right, so that's about. We'll just say we'll just call that two million. Yeah, we'll we'll call that two million uh, U.S. dollars per episode. And from what I've been able to find on the internet, they are looking to create a season two now. Right, but um, off to you guys. How much? Like, what do you think about the economics of Netflix from that perspective? So cheap. Honestly, it's it's uh, it's one of the cheapest shows out there that Netflix ever produced that went went so huge. But sorry, I'm I'm a Kim's Convenience fan. Right, so <laughs> just want to re- reiterate my love for Canadian Asian com- comedy and how Simon Liu is just junk. Okay, but anyway, um, I don't, I don't, I don't watch Netflix that much, but I do know like how much they're spending, hundreds of millions of dollars just for one series, right? And for something like that, you know, at at this price range, it's pretty wild, right? So in other words, it is showing something. It's showing that with all the consumption data that Netflix has, they actually can give you a lot of guidelines as to like what will work, what is interesting, what will what is the tick rate, how do you increase your hit rate, right? And if this is the first one that they can create at such a low production cost, what about the next one, the next one? So if they can continue to do this a few more rounds, then hey, this is, uh, that means there's a system here, right? So we don't want to kind of take on something as a one-off situation and be go like all go gaga around it. But hey, at 17 million for eight episodes, very cheap. And I want to see them repeat the system. And it's also proving that K-pop works, yeah? Like, <laughs> Korean, <laughs> Korean drama is actually going international. So yeah, next one is Thai pop. Yeah, that's my belief. But anyway, yes. <laughs> I have never saw any Thai pop before, so I can't it's make a coming. comment. There. It's coming. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, on on my side, I think I think this has proven a, a formula for them, right? So actually, I, I've been reading um, Netflix, the No Rules Rules, and and uh, the CEO talks about it there about how he focuses on content and all these things. And I think, uh, firstly, that's that's their main bet, right? Building building that sort of content and really moving forward. And we can see this actually throughout. Right, I think first it started with the House of Cards, if I'm not mistaken. Um, then they started to move towards the movies. I think with the one with, with Bill Smith, and I'm not too sure. But we saw this um, this aspect of cross culture showing and cross culture views. Right, I guess it started with with Money Heist, 
uh, or La Casa de Papo, which became, I think, the most uh, viewership at that point in time. Um, I think Stranger Things, he mentioned in his book, um, Reed Hastings, um, as, as another big bet that he did that also did cross-culture. Uh, Lupin being being that one as well. Um, I didn't know they were they, I didn't know they were the most viewed until until Squid Game. But I think this is proven to be something that works, and I believe is their secret sauce to keeping uh, number one retention high and at the same time acquiring some new customers. Um, I didn't expect it to be this low with regards to production costs. I guess they were just testing it out, and maybe a bit like Lupin, right? The first season was also quite maybe low budget, and, and the second season was a lot more. You might be seeing that with 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 Squid Game as well. Um, and and I or, or is it the fact that because COVID cases are rising globally that everybody's just turning on to uh, turning on to Netflix and just watching it now? Right? I don't think so. I think oh. everybody is going out already. Although auto cases are coming up, uh, a lot of people in the West have really moved on with their lives, right? So I I don't mm. think I don't think so. But you know, thanks for reminding me all the old shows like Money Heist, you know, <laughs> Stranger Things. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, those were all like pretty big hits at that point in time and Netflix Netflix has this amazingness right of uh, being able to create nothing from like something from nothing so they usually yeah. sign an options to produce for three seasons alright so the first three seasons will always be cheap for them and then the production house will come in and say oh you know we need to renegotiate everything and then the, the prices uh, cost of production will rise like crazy for next three seasons and the next three seasons and eventually it becomes like not as sexy, not as effective and they will drop the content, right? So I think that's still a big part of what Netflix finds challenging, which is why I will want to see more of that whole like game and multi-channel monetization going forward, right? Uh, and not so much just, just this whole like, yeah, you know, continue. That. But, but at least it's proven that their hit rate for content is, is very, very good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. For sure. um, so, you know, I, I was Googling a few of these shows uh, when we were just talking there. So House of Cards, um, they it's projected to have cost about $5 million per episode. $5 right? million, and, right. And Stranger Things was $12 million. So, episode, I mean, wow. Yeah, relative to these other, you know, uh, these two shows. Yeah, and I mean, Netflix definitely got a huge steal there. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, and I think there are a lot of um, at least within the region. I do know some people that are producing content, you know, for Netflix, and uh, there are a lot of discussion about how Netflix is flexing its reach and flexing its brand to get cheaper, you know, cheaper cost, right? So that is uh, something to do with skill. There's something to do with their hustling power, and yeah, for for them it's great. For everyone else, you know, monopoly it's always a slight problem for other people in the sector. So yeah, all that jazz, we have reaffirmed the idea that Netflix, um, it's very successful in creating new content. And actually, if you think about it, I would think it's a little bit unfair to even say that they are not creating new genres, right? So it always feels like they're creating something new altogether. You know, like it's not, not like new, new, like totally out of nowhere, but it's like they're always pushing the ground. Stranger Things, Orange the New Black, Money Heist, you know, even with this, I'm like, who the hell would think of creating a show like this? All right, so hey, pretty kudos to them. Good stuff. Cool. I think that was good. I think you know, to quickly sum up, you talked about um, creating good content. Start off with creating these new genres, but sustainability. I guess is the next question, right? After the after the first three seasons, what's going to happen next? Will they effectively move on to a bigger? Um, will the production house then say, okay, 
uh, this is what's going to cost you. Otherwise, I'm going to say this. Of course, it always happens. Always Amazon, happens, right? Yeah. Always happens, and then they'll create new shows and new shows and yeah. new shows. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, speaking about production houses, um, I also found mm. out that the production house that created Squid Games, um, I, I think it's a uh, it's publicly traded, and it's gone up seventy percent the last three trading days. Seven wow. zero. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy, yes, um, people are pricing in that already. <laughs> that's that's some good money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kore- Korean, Korean, the Korean stock market is filled with entertainment stocks. By the way, for all of you that don't know, you can you can actually buy all your big bands. You know your SNSD, your your I don't know who else is there like BTS. Yes. I think you can buy BTS. That yeah, you can actually invest in these guys. They all the companies mm-hmm. uh, they own them and they're all traded. All the entertainment, almost all of them are traded in the Korean stock market, right? So, but they are very volatile, by the way. So you can kind of see these companies. Um, for all of you that have never bought, <laughs> never bought celebrity management companies or like celebrity creation companies, you can kind of see them as the old game companies. You know, in the past when game companies, they will have overnight success. They create this like Warcraft or they create something like out of nowhere and then suddenly they become super successful. They will do a few seasons and then they kind of cycle downward and you're not sure will they be able to hit the next round. So I think the cyclicality of um, the old gaming kind of games uh, is very similar to how you should evaluate celebrity, um, at least for some of these Korean celebrity companies today. So yeah, that is uh, one way to go about doing it. Cool. Awesome, awesome. All right. Thanks, thanks for that, Sian. I think that was a great opener. Um, Reggie, on to you next. How am I going to beat that opener, right? Like, squeak game, guys. <laughs> right, right. And today, today I have something. Uh, today, I'm not the most exciting one of, of the three of you. I've got to focus on uh, China, right? So, China is the talk of the town. And I've already done an episode about Evergrande on our main feed. So, if you have not checked it out, you should definitely check it out. I put on my position. Of course, later we'll talk a little bit more about this position. Because someone with a bigger name is taking a different position. And we're getting a little bit jittery of how my thesis will age. <laughs> For my segment, I'm going to focus on Xiaomi. So China's Xiaomi invests $2 billion in auto chip company Black Sesame. I'm pretty sure it's nothing to do with the name, okay? It's not Xiaomi, Black Sesame, and then Green Bean, you know, none of those things. But this is a company that is still <laughs> relatively startup-y, right? They have just gone through a Series C round of investment. So everything is very private. There's not a lot of information out there. But they are focusing on essentially the automobile, the smart future data, you know, all that jazz of uh, mobile chips, right? So I don't know how to put it uh, better, but generally that's the idea. So they're going to AI-powered automobile vehicles and Xiaomi wants to be in the space aligned with the Chinese government and their whole combat against Intel, against all the American companies. And yeah, this is what China is doing and the, the power of China when it says that, yeah, this is what we want to do. You see all these of its companies align their strategy and invest into all these companies. So that is very interesting observation. What are you guys thinking? Yeah, so uh, Black Sesame is a Chinese automotive semiconductor company. So effectively, they make chips for cars. Would you say that? Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> Uh, well, right now there is a chip shortage, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I would, say, I would say they're not there yet. I would say they're still in uh, the, proof of, the proof of product, proof of concept kind of situation. You know. Ah, okay. Okay. Prop, not, not, not that. Not that it's like totally empty, but 
there's no num there's no numbers or like how much are we producing, how much are we acquiring. So I think in Series C, a lot of deep tech companies somewhere around Series C is when they go into the big production, right? So trying to scale up their production line and make it a viable model, right? So Series A, Series B will be a lot of investment refining the tech. So at this point in time, I would still think that they're relatively young. Yeah, but yeah, you you definitely are on point. There's a big chip lag. <laughs> <laughs> there is a big chip lag and, and Xiaomi has the scale to probably scale this Black Sesame company all the way through and the funding with it, right? If it's not a if it's not a hundred percent acquisition, it's probably a massive, massive investment. Um and I think you know it's it's a good area to go into given how many people are moving towards these automotive and smart cars, if you will, if you want to call it that. Um China is a is another big one, and I think they have also aligned on that. We've got other companies doing it, so I think it's it's great that Xiaomi wants to be at the forefront technology, as we've seen with all their OEM products and from phones to, to vacuum cleaners, to robo vacuums, to, to your table. TVs, to literally my table. Yeah. Yes. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, so I've got a standing... You have a smart yeah. table? Okay. No, no, I've got a standing table that you can, you know, sort of push up and push down and it costs me $200. So I don't need to pay $1,000 for Omnidesk, for example. Um, yeah. But yeah. Why did yeah, I not so get anyway, that? No, this, no, this, no, not sponsored by Xiaomi, but happy to be sponsored no, by Xiaomi. Just say, yeah, <laughs> So I think they're putting their hands into these things, and I think it's a good area, specifically in the in this sort of automotive semiconductor industry. I think it's it's, it's a good next step for them. Yeah, um, I so I was just I was just looking at this, um, you know, the uh, the article, and it seems like the essentially it's investing in blacks or. And yeah, Black Sesame at a $2 billion valuation. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's a few hundred million, right? So yeah. uh, I would say, yeah, maybe 20, probably 20% or so of the company, given typical, you know, typical valuation structures. Um, I actually, you know, for a company that big, I feel like a, investing in a company that's only $2 billion isn't that big, right? It's, it's I think it's for Xiaomi, it's like really, hey, you know what, let's just, Let's just throw some money, like not throw some money, but like it. But it's not it's not going to make or break their company or anything, right? It's it's probably one of the many things that they're exploring. Um, yeah, so I mean that's that's what I think about it right now. Uh, I'll definitely need to learn a bit more about Black Sesame to kind of really understand like <laughs> what exactly is this supposed to be about. Yeah, yeah, you, you should learn about red bean and black bean and green bean also. Like, yeah. I think that they're building like a, they're going they're going down that path, you know. But I I think you got that right. Um, for a lot of these big tech companies, after they have, there are many they have the whole like flywheel and the big giant cash cow. They want to reinvest into other spaces or invest into verticals that will be relevant to them. So I think Xiaomi is not yet in the in the brain space of um, Chinese capital markets, right? So a lot of a lot of uh, most of the investments in China come from Tencent, come from Alibaba. You know, JD is doing a little bit of that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's actually very hard to compete with deals, you know, in uh, in the capital space in the whole startup, you know, kind of growth trajectory, uh, especially in China because. Essentially, if you are investor in Tencent, you have a true train to the whole ecosystem, right? Same with Alibaba. So companies like Xiaomi, companies like Huawei, companies like JD, they are struggling to even get a lot of investments going. But after a few rounds of successful investments, you will see them structure to Xiaomi Capital, you know, or some, some sort of thing. Uh, and that will be a whole investment arm of their own. But I would say that 
don't be too hyped up about it. And I brought it up because I specifically want to let everybody know that a lot of companies say they want to go into microchip. A lot of companies say they want to go into semiconductors. And look at how many companies have successfully done it in the recent years, right? AMD, Intel, NVIDIA. But Intel is an old guy, right? So AMD and NVIDIA are probably the only ones. And of course, recently, Apple, right? Apple M1 chip. Um, everyone else has just kind of come and gone and they've not really done it, done it, right? So it's Black Sesame wouldn't be the first one. And I brought it up because I don't want everybody to be overhyped about it. But I also want to take this opportunity to take a look at the reality that when the Chinese government, Chinese government say that, oh, okay, we got to do this, all the companies will go along with it, right? And definitely like what Rakesh has pointed out, there is a chip shortage. So for whatever reason, whether it's a supply chain or what have you, um, it's always good to see some of this small investment into this hardware development, especially in China alone. So yeah, great stuff. Awesome, awesome. Uh, good one for there. All right, next on, I think sticking on the semiconductor, uh, <laughs> or rather automotive industry, um, I want to talk a little bit about Tesla, right? So Elon Musk mentioned that um, they're looking to manufacture about 300,000 cars in January, from January to September next year in Shanghai or in China, right? Uh, and I think it's a movement from, from the US to, to, I think they're currently manufacturing in California, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they're trying to move that to China. And of course, one of the, the biggest things that, that Tesla is currently facing is the chip shortage, automotive um, chip shortage, uh, where he believes it to be settled by the end of year. That's what Elon Musk is saying. Um, I, I mean, we, <laughs> Sorry, we don't, I don't know. Believe, I don't believe so. in manufacturing numbers from him. Just saying that. I, I, don't, I don't trust him when it comes to manufacturing Agreed, numbers. agreed. I mean, they, he has always been fighting the board with regards to the, the numbers that he has forecasted, right? Um, and, and of course, at the same time, uh, he's got a cult following. So I guess the, the stock market is still just following him on what he says. But... What do you guys think of, of him moving to China with regards to, to setting up this manufacturing plant? What do you think it's for? Is it cost? So um, Tesla already has a gigafactory in China, right? Um, in Shanghai. Uh, and from what I just uh, Googled here, uh, this uh, Shanghai gigafactory, it was designed to make 500,000 cars per year. Um, so, I mean, given, given that the factory was completed, uh, and if, if this number is actually true, then I think, you know, Elon Musk saying 300,000 within a nine month period, it is, it's, and it's in the realm of feasibility from a, from a battery perspective, right? I think, um, I think he's made bigger claims uh, about a lot of other stuff um, <laughs> from, from relative from a real, uh, realm of possibility side of things, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, so from that perspective, like, you know, I don't, I, I guess at this point, I believe him. Um, I, I, I believe it's possible. The question really is going to be, can, well, yeah, will they actually be able to really pull it off? Um, I don't really follow Tesla too closely, so I don't know, you know, how many, how many have they actually produced this year, right? In the last nine months, how many did they produce? Um, and yeah, if we were to extrapolate it out, what type of growth rate do they need to see in order to hit this goal that they're talking about? Yeah. Okay, I can, I can see ground on that, you know. He has made crazier so, claims. <laughs> it, does, it does sound like this is within the realm of possibility. Yes, Rakesh, you have say? So, yeah, for example, in the first eight months in that in the factory, they did 240,000 cars, right? <laughs> uh, or rather, the, the vehicles were shipped. So we're looking at probably a, what is that, a 30% increase of um, cars uh, in terms of manufacturing. 
I think that the question here as well is there is that current chip shortage. So the car cannot be made without this chip. And we have seen even Honda right in, in Japan as saying that we have a 40 to 50% chip shortage. Uh, and we're looking for that to increase um, and hopefully, sorry, a decrease 20% by the end of year. Or I think it was November that they were saying, right? So if that's the case, are we actually looking, given the fact that there wasn't very, like the shortage is upcoming and could be worse, given that they did 240,000 cars in eight months, a 40% or 30% increase on that, is that really sustainable? Yeah, so I, I don't think it's about sustainability. It's, it's really about growth and being strategic at this point in time, right? They are growing and they're mm. trying to sell more cars and they're trying to optimize their supply chain. So, you know, sustainability, yeah, I don't think it's within the discussion for this particular situation here. But I would say that if you look at the global market, you look at the global supply chain, China has the most efficient global supply chain, right? With this one, we cannot lie to ourselves, yeah. right? And they have Absolutely. they have end-to-end -end resources. They have the the rare earth metals, you know, all the way to producing very low-level chips. Yeah, it's not wrong that at this point in time, China is still producing like what, 9 nanometer or like 7 nanometer or like what, 12 nanometer, you know, some of the bigger chips and... Uh, you know, if you if you look at who is producing the three nanometer, five nanometer, it's in Taiwan, it's in Samsung with Korea, you know, and uh, I think Intel is doing five nanometer. Like so, a lot of the chips are still a lot more backward in China. So that is one big part about China's problem. But if you think about it, if the global supply chain challenge, uh, I think China is going to win out on the global supply chain, right? Just because they have an end to end situation, they. The whole world has globalized, right? And shift their supply chain. Where do they shift their supply chain to? <laughs> they shift the, all their supply chain or big parts of their supply chain to China, right? So, and China rightfully pointed out that, hey, this is a strategic challenge that we are facing. And yeah, you know, Black Sesame is doing it. Xiaomi is investing in it. And you will see a lot more investment <laughs> into developing that. But all that being said, it's not going to be an overnight thing. Three-year, five-year, 10-year development. You know, it's not like now, now, you know, or, or whatever you, right? But... I would say that if you understand the global chip supply chain, Taiwan and Korea is where a lot of the chips are coming from, right? So um, I did a geek out with uh, searching on ASML and it's on the stock geek out feed. So you should check it out and listen. What is inside? What do we talk about? So we vividly recognize that most of the chips are coming out of Asia, right? So why don't you want to be here, right? Whether you're Tesla or not, you want to put your supply chain here. You want to have that kind of power to negotiate. And I think the Chinese government has the power to negotiate with its neighbors, although there's this tension with Taiwan, what have you. But hey, you know, I want, I can pay. I can pay you a premium. I need the numbers. Give it to me, right? So um, I, I I make it sound like I'm part of the Chinese government, right? I'm not yet, uh, but anyway. So, so <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Maybe uh, you can look out for me, okay? Anyway, but, <laughs> but yes, I think the idea here is China is very optimized with supply chain. Chain. They have a kink here, uh, but you know whether Tesla is doing a short-term repositioning of its supply chain or whether is it like a longer-term strategic situation. Either way, I think it's good decision, right? All right. Uh, next topic, CS. What are we on? All right. So uh, speaking of Tesla, um, so this famous investor um, has an open short position. Um, so I think he first started shorting Tesla in December 2020. In May 2021, he bought about $800,000 worth, or sorry, 800,000 shares worth of exposure through options, so put options. And I mean, we'll, we'll eventually see how that plays out, right? Uh, so this person is Michael Berry. 
Uh, he was the one who famously um, profited off the big sh- or the mortgage crisis, right? And or the um, credit default swaps and um, the whole mortgage crisis scenario back in 2008 in the U.S. Um, and he is also now, or supposedly, he also uh, made a few comments on Twitter, uh, show or disclosing he has some sort of short interest in Evergrande. So yes, uh, topic here is Evergrande. Um, I don't know. Where, I mean, where do we want, where do we want to begin on this conversation? I just want to put it out there that I have put out my positions and I put out my thoughts. Okay, I don't own Evergrande, but I've done, I've done it and I put it on our main feed called the Peninsula Coconut. So you should check it out if you if you have not. I don't know how you end up geek out without checking out the main feed. But if you're somehow here and you're not in the main feed, please go listen to the main feed. And I just hope that my thesis age well over time. And I don't want to be on the other side of Michael Burry. Sorry to say, you know, not all investment guys are always right and not always like there there. But Michael Burry is one of those people that does not always come up with investment theses. You know, so it's not, it's yeah. not, it's not like Citron. It's not like who's the other guy, uh, the guy that runs Pershing Square, Bill Ackman. Uh, you know, yeah. Carl Inken. They're throwing out theses every week. You know, it's like always has theses, but Michael Burry has a few, right? And one is that credit default swaps. One is uh, options on water. You know, which he did after the credit default swaps. And now he comes out and say that, oh, you know, this is a big bubble, which I get it. You know, although, 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 although in my in my discussion, you know, I, I did say that I don't think it will blow up. I think the government will really try very, very hard to hold it back. And I think the government does have the ability to hold it back. But I cannot deny that the property bubble is a very big bubble. I've lived there. I've, I've traveled around. And I have physically seen those kind of areas where they're just like, what the hell is going on here? All right. So it's like, Big empty apartments, like a whole estate, you know. I wouldn't even call it estate, like a whole town, a whole city that, you know, has, has nothing much going on. So all these phantom apartments and phantom property buildings, it's true. And it's there, right? And it's taking up a lot of debt, uh, both in the consumers and both in the, the corporate debt structure, right? So you see a lot of that happening. But I would say that the Chinese government is ready for it. You know, they have already signaled this in 2017, Right, so if you want to talk about how aware and how conscious the Chinese government is, they're definitely more aware than when the US went for a crash. Right, so um, mm-hmm. this is this is definitely a good thing for them. At least they're aware and they know what they're trying to do. And I've heard a lot of pundits in China speaking in Mandarin, talking about how they're going to solve some of these problems. Um, and because the debt is denominated in RMB, we cannot lie to ourselves, because the debts are denominated in RMB, they have the full ability to essentially kind of squeeze out uh, squeeze out the debt and pump in new, new liquidity some people will get hurt the market will shake it's not going to be a it's not going to be a cruise there'll be a lot of problems but i don't think it'll be as bad but i really hope whatever i said age well because because it's michael burry right guys <laughs> yeah it is well whatever you said is out now out in the out in the open and out in the world i guess we'll go look back and and review that in about three to six months depending on yeah. where we're going <laughs> what we're gonna see <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. 
yes, yes. Please be opportunistic, but not overly capitalized. Okay, like like you can you can always be opportunistic as an individual. Um, okay, but I still have to say it's not it's not not recommendation. You know, <laughs> please do not take it as a recommendation. It's solely for education purposes only. But I I am opportunistic, so I am definitely you know looking at some of the interesting stuff. But I will say like you you still gotta manage, you know, the size of your portfolio, the size of your bets, um, and all that jazz. Yeah. Just want to uh, you know give out our friends at Brand News uh, who initially you know brought this to my attention. Um, so you know I, I don't want to use I don't want to talk too much more about um, what they wrote in there. Definitely check it out if you're interested. Um, but when I was, um, but I think what made uh, headlines or the initial headlines was um, Bill Ackman essentially pointing pointing to um, someone's Twitter profile. So this is a you know, uh, I think I would say it's a relatively small profile. It's not like a well-known person. Uh, it seems like it's an, an pretty much anonymous account. And this is essentially he initially, you know, uh, made it like um, called this uh, account out back in uh, late July. And as in like, you know, so I'll, sorry, I'll just I'll just read exactly what um, what uh, Burry uh, supposedly tweeted. So he said, uh, note to date. This is why if you want to be informed or to be cool, you should read every single thread on Evergrande slash China slash Contagion the last few months by, you know, at the last bear, the last bear standing, right? Or the last bear stand, stand one or what have you, right? Um, so I, I went through the guy's uh, profile, uh, checked out a few of his tweets, um, a lot of information, haven't actually read it all. Um, but one thing, I mean, one of the things that I found interesting that, uh, that was mentioned is that uh, in August uh, 2021, uh, China's residential property uh, slowed down uh, quite significantly. Home sale values dropped 20%, um, and it's continued to escalate, right? And this is like back in August. Uh, so as someone who's been in the market before, um, as a, you know, as someone who's buying a property, you're typically putting down a, some sort of deposit, right? Um, and usually that deposits, I mean, depending on where you live, it could be anywhere from like 5% to 30%, right? So if your property value is starting to drop 20%, um, essentially, in a, in a sense, like your deposit just got wiped out. And I think that was one of the challenges with, um, you know, back with the U.S. Uh, side of things, right? When people were living in property values or in properties, or if they had properties that were that were that were costing more from a loan perspective than the actual property value after after the after the implosion, right? So I think that from that perspective, um, I'm very curious to see what will happen, uh, and you know, with with the market and how people, how all these people are like who've taken out all these different loans would essentially view, you know, how how would they act, right? Will they act similar to um, the U.S. where they just start walking away and just letting it the default? Uh, which then became, you know, a cascading issue, or will was the Chinese government somehow be able to like step in and and limit that exposure? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's important to look back at history and realize that the Chinese government is not the only one that is facing such a challenge or has or is faced or has faced such a challenge. Um, you, you see that in the Korea, the early days of Korea trying to develop, you know, all your 
property crashes and all that. Literally, the whole property coming down. Yeah, I know some people are seeing viral videos of like, oh, you know, China, anyhow, built property. You know, but actually, Korea went through that same shit. You know, Singapore went through that same thing. Japan went through that same thing where when the market is overcapitalized and or trying very hard to grow in a short period of time, um, people cut corners and there's not enough legislation, not enough regulation around a lot of things. So, and you know, the, the, it just becomes a bubble, right? So at this point in time, I definitely agree that it is a bubble. Uh, my fundamental divergence is that there is no complicated derivative situation, or at least there's no complicated derivative situation uh, relative to what was happening in the, in the 08 mortgage crisis. All right, so uh, we will see. But uh, I just want to put it out there that I don't think you will see a lot of Chinese people sleeping on the streets, okay? Don't worry about that. A lot of them will go back to their hometown, right? And if you want to learn more about that, really, 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 really you wanna, you must understand the, the 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 revolution and the kind of land reform that went through during China's uh, rise to where it is today, right? So there was an early day when there was a lot of problems and they were going through revolution. And during the period of revolution, the people actually got back their land. So it's very different from the situation in the US where a lot of the, it, there were a few major landowners and there were a lot of slaves. And when you liberalize, you allow the slaves to go out, they don't own land. So they have to concentrate in the city where jobs are, right? So or they have to go to wherever jobs are and they don't actually have whatever, you know, equity in the physical land itself and they don't have homes, you know, in rural parts of, you know, of, of the country. Well, in China, because of the revolution, a lot of people own land. Okay, I, I don't be surprised that some of them have already sold it and all that over the process of capitalization. But a lot of the rural guys, they have equity in the fiscal land, right? So they can go back, they have very big houses back in their hometown. Um, and that's, a, that's the interesting part that's structurally different from the US, right? So that is a very interesting thing. So please check out our episode. Yeah, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, I, exactly. So I think the culture is very, very different. I, it, let's see. It's definitely going to be volatile. I think for me, it's, it's just seeing where it's going to go, how it's going to affect the U.S. market or any other market for that matter, because confidence is a major, major factor. And given what China is doing with cryptocurrency, is money going to flow from there to crypto? Is, is, or is crypto effectively going back, right? That's an additional variable that we don't necessarily have to talk about now, but it's also something just to say, okay, moving towards quite a volatile area, quite a volatile time. Um, and it, we just need to see as the news comes along. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yes. Um, right. Now that you're on mute, uh, we'll, move, we'll move along to, to Reg. <laughs> yeah. So following, following the threat of China, today both my companies are in China because I've been looking at a lot of Chinese companies. Um, as you know, with any other people that really wants to be serious in the markets, whenever there's blood on the streets, that is where you start working and try to look at what's going on, right? So um, of course, you know, don't be in a rush. Uh, take your time to kind of learn. There'll, be all, there'll always be blood on the streets when the market is overcapitalized and uh, the market changes and the cycles and whatever you, right? But today I want to focus on one of the companies that I've been talking a little bit more about um, called Trip.com, right? So for all of you that don't know Trip.com, they own Skyscanner, they own Trip.com, they own Xiecheng, they own Chunar, some of the biggest uh, Chinese travel platforms and apps, right? So Skyscanner and Trip.com, they're not in China. Skyscanner, I think it's in Belgium or they started in the UK, something like that. So it's it's part of their acquisition process uh, that allowed them to come out. So I am, I already recorded episodes coming out, right? so stay tuned for that. But yeah, focusing on the company, I think what is interesting is recently, numbers just came out and you see total revenue increased by 86% year over year and 43% quarter on quarter. 
What the main idea is, is that they have actually recovered all the way back to pre-COVID times already and beyond, right? So they are cross merchant value. That means all the tickets that they're processing, whether it's in hotels or air tickets, has already gone above pre-COVID times, right? So in other words, suggesting that Chinese people are traveling internally, and that whole effect is bringing up the local tourism market and it's also at the same time bringing this company along with it because they are one of the biggest. They own. They essentially own the whole supply chain for every one of you that don't know. I'm sure you know WeChat, you know Alibaba, you know, but um, actually a lot of these guys like WeChat, when they sell, when they sell, uh, you know, whatever like hotels or ferry tickets or train tickets, they're actually selling from trip.com. Right, so if you didn't know, right? So one of the platform trip.com, they have this thing called cross-platform sales. And it is a conscious thing. Right? It's like how PayPal, there was a period of time they were only focused on themselves. They didn't allow other people to use their ecosystem. And then they decided to take a pivot and work with Uber, work with Facebook, work with everyone else, so that whoever wherever you're using, they are white labeled, they're all using PayPal's infrastructure. Right. So for trip.com, it's also the same situation. Whichever platform you're buying from, a lot of them will link back to trip.com's supply chain. Right. And with that, they actually they have a very serious business in inventory management, like travel inventory management, because essentially all these guys are selling through them, right? Whether is it amusement park, trains, hotels, air tickets, they're all selling through them. So they have created, and they spun out additional business, which is inventory, travel inventory management, and it's growing 150% year on year. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting company uh, riding on China's growth back into quote unquote normal life. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a good area to look into, right? And and given the fact that you mentioned, number one, they're back to pre-COVID times, actually surpassed pre-COVID times, really talked about, even, even during our chat today, you talked about all of the cases are rising, people are still going out, people are still traveling. We've got yourself, which is already traveling in, in a couple of days. <laughs> Bye, guys. Uh, and happy, done, happy, ha- happy to done. leave Singapore. And you're not the only one in, in that basket, right? A lot everyone has been effectively saving up to travel. Yeah, and as soon as there is you're that You're suggesting something there, right? Is that, are, you, are you next? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, yes, right? And, and I guess the rest of the world is not like Singapore, right? Because if you live in Australia, for example, and you're not in the lockdown states, you can still travel to a different location. So Singapore is a little nuanced in that sense. But in Europe, if you notice, everyone is traveling. And even if it's a high incidence area like the UK... People are still going from UK to Germany and they just make it work. We see that in the US as well as, as it continues to go on. China is happening as well with the vaccination rates quite quite high. So I think it's a, it's a good area to look into. It's a good stock to look into now, given the growth as well as the sort of partnerships that you were talking about, mm-hmm. specifically on, on trip.com, right? Because they, they have different angles. They have a B2B angle. They have a B2C angle. They have a B2B2C angle mm-hmm. from what I understand. And those yep, are yep. great. <laughs> those are great. One goes down, it's all right, man. I've got the other two. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Great company. And they're exactly, yeah, definitely. CS, anything you add there? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I number one, I, I, I love using Skyscanner when I'm in Southeast Asia. So, you know. Exactly. You know, I use Skyscanner everywhere I go. Yep. Yeah. We do so use to know Skyscanner. Yes. To know that it's uh, from trip.com, like that's, that's a win for sure, right? Um, I do think that uh, with any like any sort of like travel or like um, 
what do you call them, like leisure type of companies that have been impacted by COVID, I do think there is going to be some sort of permanent um, write-off uh, for a lot of these companies, right? Um, and I, I guess, uh, and this is like pretty much like, uh, there's going like within every single subset of population, there's going to be a percentage of people who are not going to be comfortable doing what they were doing pre-COVID, right? Even though they're fully vaccinated, they're like, hey, I don't want to risk it. I want to stay at home all the time, right? Like uh, case in point, like uh, my girlfriend, like she's not comfortable going out even though she's fully vaccinated. So she doesn't go to restaurants. She does. She refuses to do that, right? Um, and you know, even with my parents, right? Like um, fully vaccinated, but they also decided, ah, no, rather not go, you know, rather not go visit my sister in Europe and all that, right? Um, so I do think uh, there is going to be a percentage of the population that's just not going to be open to travel for a very long time, um, which I think, you know, Reggie, when you talked about Camping World a few uh, sessions ago, it's like, like companies like that benefit from that as well, right? Um, but yeah, so I, I do think, I, I, I'm very interested in seeing how it plays out uh, over the long term. Uh, mm-hmm. But for me personally, I, I won't be getting into any any travel stocks or anything like that anytime soon. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I want to add to that, that if you recognize how big China is, it's a market. Um, and I, I'm not using it as a <clears throat> as a blanket term. Everyone says, oh, China is a big market. The reality is there are a lot of people in China and the travel infrastructure is very developed. Right, so if, you, if you've been there, the high-speed rail is like, bah, you get there, it's super fast, right? There, there are a lot of airports around. Just imagine... Singaporeans, right? There's a new MRT station. People go to the MRT station and see what's around there. Right? So <laughs> that is that is the same idea, you know, with China spending and leading the kind of investment to build trains into places where nobody goes to, to build airports into places that nobody goes to. But you're seeing the kind of growth in regional travel and domestic travel. So I would say that actually a lot of Chinese, they do spend a lot of money abroad. And, and now that, you know, they can't really travel or they don't really want to travel because China is relatively safe compared to everyone else, or at least in their narrative and their perspective is relatively safe. They are traveling internally, right? So it's definitely a great time for a lot of these companies and all that jazz, right? So, but I'm not going to go into a geek out situation with trip.com. You know, welcome anyone that wants to do a geek out with me. Hello at thefinancialcoconut.com. Just email in and then we could, we could kind of work through that. Yeah, but I also want to take this opportunity to kind of open up our brains a little bit. If you think about it, a lot of people are avoiding some of these leisure companies or like hotel companies and whatever you, right? But hotels are an interesting companies because a lot of the hotels are just giving brands, right? They are selling brands, they're selling management, they don't actually own the physical buildings, right? So if you think about it, who will recover the quickest? Actually, a lot of these big branded hotels will recover, probably recover faster than a lot of these like you know, quirky, weird hotels out there or like independent hotels because they have a whole ecosystem. So I do think that a lot of these hotels will see an uptick in management contracts. They will see more and more rooms under them. They will, you will see more branded hotels going around, right? Especially from the big brands. But at least that's my, my thesis, uh, my very, very shallow, random thought of, of the week, right? So yeah, that's, that's for travel. Nice. I think as a, as a quick shout out, right? If you would like to, to do any geek out, um, please, please let us know. I think Reggie mentioned hello at the Financial Coconut. Thanks again for tuning in, guys. Last week, we were a little down, a little sick. Don't worry, it wasn't COVID. Um, <laughs> it was it was flu-related, though, I think. But we're back. We're back. Um, and next week, we promise to have all our tech settled. <laughs> so thanks again. Follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, Instagram. 
Right. Uh, any more social medias I, I should <laughs> talk about? Join our Telegram. Join our Telegram. Right. Telegram. Exactly. So join, yes, yes, yes. Join our like Telegram. The geek out Telegram is so quiet. Like, like you guys got to lead it, man. You got to ask questions. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go there and like give you more content. It has to be an interactive situation. Right. So come to our Telegram group, TFC Stock Geek Out to, you know, ask questions, drop your thesis and, and all that jazz. But yes, uh, I want to double down on Rakesh's closing, you know, email to us, hello at the financial coconut.com. We are trying to look for more personalities, more hosts, also more, more experts, more independent analysts that want to geek out and want to share their perspectives on different, different companies. So yes, cool stuff. Awesome. Thanks for listening, guys, and looking forward to next week. Have a good week ahead. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode with me, Rakesh, and trust that you learned something today. If you enjoyed the session and want to be part of the banter, Join our community Telegram group or follow us on social media. We also have a weekly newsletter to get a digest of the news we covered. To sign up, please click the description below. As always, we love your feedback. So share that with us at hello at thefinancialcoconut.com. Thanks and stay safe.